Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And y'all, we made it. The election is done, or at least almost all the way done. We'll talk about some runoffs. Uh, but that is what we are talking about on today's show. Uh, today, I am joined by my co-host, Megan Payne. Welcome, Megan. Hey, Kyle. How's it going? It is, uh, I feel relieved, even though Me I'm a little disappointed. too. Yes. And then uh, we are also joined by Jessica Salaji, a writer at All On Georgia. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for having me. On this week's show, we are going to dig into all of these election returns. The midterms are now officially over. Um, And as you probably have seen, Democrats have taken the U.S. House while Republicans have grown their majority in the U.S. Senate. And the governor's race in Georgia is uh, currently deadlocked uh, right around the area where there may be a runoff. Uh, Kemp currently has 50.33% of the vote on Wednesday night as we are recording to Abrams 48.72. But it looks like Kemp is declaring victory in that race. So we'll talk about the national races, the state races, uh, and some good gains for the Democrats in the state legislature. Uh, But first, let's check in on the big news item of the day. And that was that shortly after the midterms ended, President Trump dismissed Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And let's just go around the circle and get your reactions to that. Megan, what did you think about Jeff Sessions leaving the scene? So, I I mean, I think everyone who's a regular listener probably knows how I feel about Trump. And so I just think that this is a a move to start further suppressing the Mueller investigation. Um, I know that's kind of a long game look at this, but... Whitaker is the one that's taking over as acting attorney general, and he's been critical of the investigation and Mueller. So that's just what it feels like. It seems like really odd timing, but we'll have to just see how this all plays out. Um, I would definitely agree that it's odd timing. I was shocked by it, but I'm whatever the reason is that we probably will learn more about in coming weeks. I'm just pleased because I've never been a Sessions fan. I never wanted him to be our attorney general. I think his policies are garbage in the way he approaches things. And so, I mean, I'm just, from the perspective of outside of the investigation, the points that Megan brings up, I'm, I'm happy that he's gone. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. It's interesting timing, given that if Trump does view this as an avenue to impact the Mueller investigation, there in January is going to be a Democratic majority that can hold investigations and pass legislation that would protect the Mueller investigation and really put Republicans in the Senate in a corner to pick between Trump and supporting their president or Uh, supporting this investigation. And so it'll be interesting to see if any moves to sort of box Mueller in are also accompanied with attempts to delegitimize this investigation in the eyes of, particularly in the eyes of Republican voters. Um, So we will keep an eye on that story as that develops. Uh, But let's dive into some of these results in the midterm elections. Um, So starting in Georgia, 
The governor's race appears to be over, but it may not actually be over. Uh, Kemp is currently claiming victory with 50.33% of the vote on Wednesday night, while the Abrams campaign is saying that they are going to pursue every avenue to make sure that any leftover provisional or absentee ballots are counted. Um, the, The game for Abrams at this point is to hope that Abrams would that either Abrams or Ted Metz would get enough votes to pull Brian Kemp under that 50% plus one number and bring that race into a runoff. But let's start with that election, uh, the, the governor's race, and get your reaction to that. And for the sake of this conversation, let's just assume that Kemp is going to win this race. Um, obviously, this will all be out of date if this turns into a runoff. But for now, it looks like Kemp is on his way. Um, Jessica, what was your uh, reaction to Kemp coming out on top in this race? Um, I was really surprised more how the um, Libertarian underperformed. It did worse and Ted Metz did worse in this race than any of the other candidates for or libertarian candidates did and so i was a little disappointed i was kind of partially hoping for a runoff partially not but i will say that um kind of to tie it to another race if kemp is victorious and not having a runoff i think it fares better for barrow to not have kemp at the top of the ticket to bring out republicans um for a runoff election so i am a little bit optimistic about that but i was surprised and i'm surprised I don't know. I, I I had a gut feeling that Abrams was going to come out on top if there was a runoff um, on this end. Maybe not ultimately, but for this election. And so I was a little bit surprised. Um, so I was super bummed. Uh, mostly, you know, I was I am an Abrams fan. I want to see Georgia turn blue. And so I was really hoping that we had a shot at getting a Democrat who is a, a for our governor, especially a woman of color, somebody to be progressive and kind of bring Georgia into a more progressive, uh, turn Georgia into a more progressive state. But that said, I was actually pretty, you know, if if it if she does have to lose, I want to say that I am proud of how the numbers look. It is such a close election; it is insane. Um, there are fewer than 70,000 votes between Kemp and Abrams at this point. And so that's just phenomenal for a statewide election. Yeah, Abrams certainly closed the gap, um, as we talked about before, sort of the average gap at the top of statewide tickets between Democrats and Republicans in recent years has been about 200,000 votes. And so she seems to have more than cut that in half. Um, I did kind of feel like going into election night that she was going to come up a little short. And I don't really think it was anything really the fault of her campaign. Um, I think she chose her strategy to appeal to a Democratic base to bring out a new electorate, a new more progressive electorate, and a new more diverse electorate. And she seems to have done that. But it does seem to also have activated the base of the Republican Party to come out and back Kemp. You know, I think Kemp probably did get a leg up by having Trump come to town. And because this was an election that was really both candidates looking at their base and trying to get them enthused to come out and vote for them, even though the president is not on the ticket, it just, I think that's just sort of the way the cards fell for Abrams. Um, so, so I think it's unfortunate for her, but I don't think if, 
if you ask her, I wonder if she would say that she would do it any differently because it does seem like she executed her strategy as she said she would. I agree. She, I mean, her, the entire get out the vote effort and everything from over the last 18 months has been incredible. Look at the number of people that turned out, even against all of the things that Democrats said they were facing. But, you know, I think that I'm wondering which of the lawsuits are going to be the ones that are pursued over the next couple of weeks, because I, I doubt that any of this is just going to quietly go away. Yeah, I think that part is really unclear. I guess it's going to depend on what information they can get from the Secretary of State's office as to whether or not they feel like any of the procedures for vote counting were were done incorrectly or illegally so that they could make a case. Um, right now, the focus seems to be on provisional ballots and on absentee ballots to make sure that those get counted and get considered as for maybe forcing this to a runoff. But um, what do you guys think about the... Do, do you think that there are any legitimacy issues for Kemp in winning this election? Should he come out on top? There were a couple of national articles and national outlets, the Boston Globe and the Atlantic, about Kemp's voter suppression efforts and that his victory in this race should have an asterisk on it. But I did not see that conversation really pick up locally beyond the more technical discussion about whether or not these provisional ballots were being counted um, and whether or not this race was actually done. Do you think that uh, Kemp is going to have any legitimacy issues as it relates to how this race was conducted? I think he'll face some. Um, I know that it's something that has kind of been up for discussion in at least the Facebook and uh, other social media groups that I'm seeing kind of the insinuation that, um, well, if he wins, it's because he cheated. I don't know that anyone is going to be able to pick up and do anything with it. Um, The only thing that I've really seen is um, the lawsuit, the emergency lawsuit to place a restraining order on him, um, which I briefly read it before we recorded. And it seems it's, it's interesting to say the least. And I I'm definitely going to continue to follow that one and keep an eye on it. But other than that, I haven't really seen anything other than people saying, let's make sure he has to follow process. Let's advertise. Let's make sure people are following up. So people will say things, but I don't know how much water they'll hold. But holding people to the same standard, I mean, I'm wondering what Kemp's going to do about his investigation into the um, alleged hacking attempts by the Democrats um, on, what was it, Saturday night? So I'm interested to see how both sides handle this, because I think there's a common trend of when you win that the allegations you made, you just pretend like you didn't make them or they're not as a big of a deal or you just let them go away quietly. And I'd kind of like to see Democrats hold him accountable on that, because if it is true, then obviously there's merit to that. But if it isn't, that sets a tone for his governorship. So... Well, and it may become an issue in the Secretary of State's runoff. Um, so we'll we'll fill you in on the other statewide elections as we go here. But the Secretary of State's race is going to go to a runoff between John Barrow and Brad Raffensperger. Um, and I've been curious as to whether or not should John Barrow ultimately come out on top in this race, uh, if he would do a backwards looking investigation into the claim made by Secretary Kemp 
that the Democrats were attempting to hack the voter registration system right before the election. I don't know. The hard thing about, you know, even if they come up with some kind of report that shows that Kemp was like technically in the legal right to call an investigation at that point, but it was maybe an abuse of his power to do so, so close to an election. I don't know that anything comes of that beyond Democrats feeling like they've been reaffirmed that Kemp has been a cheater in this race and Republicans uh, feeling like uh, Democrats are just using the courts to try to gum up things for Kemp. But it'll be interesting to see if that issue was is to emerge in this runoff. Um, and if either of the candidates take a position on that, because um, both candidates, or really all three candidates that were in the first round of this race, um, including the libertarian Smiley Duval, seem to want the Secretary of State's office to move to a more transparent and more effective uh, place than they've been. Like nobody really got on the stage during any of these races and and said that everything that Brian Kemp did as Secretary of State was perfect and golden, and we'll just keep doing what he was doing. Let's go back to the hacking thing for a minute, though. So, what what do we know about like you know I I kind of kept up with it just because I'm into tech, but people hack things all the time. They're called hacktivists, and a lot of times what they'll do is they'll hack things just to be able to say, hey, this is hackable. We're letting you know. And then nothing legal ever comes of it. And I don't really know that the laws have caught up to treating hacking as like breaking and entering or something like that. You know, I don't know what, you know, what, what, what legal ramifications are there if you say, okay, well, they hacked into my stuff, but they didn't do anything. You know, do we know if anyone actually did anything? Do we just, you know, is it just alleged that somebody did manage to get in? If so, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot there. So I don't know why Kemp would focus on it. Oh, I don't think Kemp would focus on it. I think it would be something that Democrats could, you know, try to continue this discussion around did Kemp cheat in this race or not? And this is one issue that they can uh, pull at along with the the voter purges the uh, exact match system the other uh, issues with voting that Democrats have been raising throughout this process but from what I understand about the hacking claim that was made right before the election is that uh, Secretary Kemp launched an investigation into the Georgia Democratic Party saying that a volunteer with the voter protection office that is a part of the Democratic Party's organization is a person of interest in an investigation about an attempt to hack the voter registration system. Uh, But that beyond that, there is not a lot of detail from the Secretary of State's office. And that the Democrat side of the story is that this person who is a person of interest in that investigation received an email from an outside source alerting them to a vulnerability in the voter registration systems security and that that email had in it a computer program, computer script uh, that would have allowed somebody to exploit that vulnerability and that that was then passed up the chain in within the Democrats organization and outside to some cybersecurity experts who verified that this did look like a vulnerability. And then that the secretary of state's office was notified by the Democrats 
uh, but that the Secretary of State's office also found out about this vulnerability separately. And so the premise of the investigation was that an employee of the state Democrats had this script and therefore had the ability to exploit that vulnerability. But what Democrats are crying foul about is that, yeah, we had the script, but we told you about it. And now you're uh, launching an investigation into us just because we were the ones to help alert you to the problem. Well, and that's exactly my point. Like, nothing was done with it. So, like, I, I can understand investigating the vulnerability, but I guess the way I understand it from a bigger picture perspective is that people are freaking out about the fact that an alert was made. And, like, that's... People people do that for a living. Well, and this is what was central to the debate over Senate Bill 315 last year uh, that was ultimately vetoed by the governor was uh, people in at the state level were embarrassed about the data release at Kennesaw State University. And so they wanted to criminalize this activist hacking, which the cybersecurity community got upset about and said was the complete wrong way to approach cybersecurity. Exactly. Governor, and Governor Deal vetoed that bill. And so the, the place where I think you would look to launch an investigation, if you're, say, a Democratic Secretary of State, John Barrow, who wants to look back at this, is to say, is the only thing that they knew that there was an attempt, or is the only thing that's that the Secretary of State Kemp's office knew was that somebody had sort of probed the website and knew about these vulnerabilities, but didn't do anything about it. Because under Georgia law, that is technically not a crime, which was the reason for that bill. And you could then, I guess, argue at that point that if it actually wasn't a crime, then Kemp was abusing his power to to call that investigation. But, you know, all of that is backward looking, and it is going to happen after the election when, when people have moved on. So I, I'm... I'm not, uh, you know, very optimistic that that that's actually going to matter at all. Jessica, what do you think, looking forward to a Governor Kemp administration um, and in the legislative session in January, what do you think Kemp becoming the state's next governor is going to mean for, uh, you know, what the state's doing in legislative session or sort of the direction of of our state going forward? The former Republican in me is optimistic because he's not a former Democrat. So there's that. But at the same time, you know, our legislature, the reason that Democrats and Republicans vote so much or so much alike in our state legislature is because I feel like the Republicans are offering moderate, maybe sometimes bigger government issues. And so I'm not sure that I don't I don't anticipate in the next year or two that we'll see a shift towards like more conservative values that maybe Kemp espoused during his campaign. I think with Ralston being as powerful as he is, and then the you couple that with stripping Duncan of some of the powers that Cagle had um, in the lieutenant governor's office, I think we'll see more of the same kind of hold steady for a while before there's any type of transition to a Kemp approach. Yeah, I think that's true, particularly for this first legislative session. And I think it's unclear. I don't think we really learned from the campaign whether Kemp was going to govern as the conservative that you saw in the primary, or the more moderate, chamber-friendly, business-focused Republican that he appeared to be in the general election. He seemed to embody both of those personas sort of equally well. And 
you know, people who personally know Kemp that I've talked to were like shocked during the primary that he was picking up this Trumpy tone and trying to be kind of a Trumpy candidate as opposed to somebody more in line with the values of somebody like Casey Cagle. Um, but, you know, he it's it's hard to sort of look to the policies that he proposed to sort of see see through all that and see what he's actually going to do and, and where that positions him. Because, you know, I just I didn't feel like throughout this entire race, we got a lot of detail about what he actually wanted to do beyond the sort of vague headline items of cut regulations, no Medicaid expansion and Georgia first. Megan, what do you think is next for Stacey Abrams? So once we get through the, you know, verifying that this is not going to go into a runoff and all of that sort of thing, I really do think that she has an eye on national politics. Um, I think we kind of saw an example of that in her campaign style. And I think that we will see her make some sort of move toward that. I'm not sure what office she would want to go for yet or anything like that. But I do think that we will continue to see her be fully engaged in politics. I think she's too um, well liked and too connected to just disappear. I mean, being an elected official wasn't her only role in politics. And I think people sometimes forget that she's influential and she's effective. And whether you agree with her politics or not, like those are the types of people we need in politics. So even as somebody who did not cast a vote for her, I hope that she stays in the forefront because clearly she has something in her that is able to mobilize and engage people. Absolutely. She's a great leader. And I I agree that I, I definitely hope she stays in politics. I hope she stays in Georgia politics just because I feel like we need her progressive voice in Georgia. But I do think that with the way she ran her election, I do think she's got an eye toward national. And so I think we'll just have to see over the next weeks and months how um, how she uses her connections and her voice. Yeah, she's got her uh, spreadsheet with her life plan in it that she's talked about on the trail. And I think the next step beyond being Georgia's governor was to run for president. I don't know if I mean, the 2020 field for president looks wide open, and so she could certainly throw her hat in. But, you know, she she has a crowded lane with two other progressive darlings who didn't win in this cycle in Beto O'Rourke in the Texas Senate race and Andrew Gillum in the Florida governor's race that also sort of have a similar profile that could, if they wanted to, to rise up fast, they could jump into that 2020 race. But uh, it seems like every Democrat on earth is running for president in 2020. So we'll see where that goes to uh, drop down to some of the other statewide. Uh, so this beyond the two races that are going to go to a runoff, which is a public service commissioner race in the Raffensperger Barrow secretary of state's race. It was a Republican sweep statewide. Jeff Duncan is your next Lieutenant governor. Chris Carr uh, retains his seat as attorney general Gary Black retains his seat as the Commissioner of Agriculture. Jim Beck is going to be your next Commissioner of Insurance. And Richard Woods uh, retains his seat as State School Superintendent. Jessica, were there any surprises in a Republican sweep to you of these uh, lower-level statewide seats, or is this about what you expected? I think everything was pretty much as expected. I was surprised that Richard Woods was the highest 
Republican, like percentage wise, the greatest take on a Democrat. That, that really kind of surprised me, I guess, just because education seems to be so partisan these days. And I just wouldn't have expected that. I, I was, Duncan was pretty in line and, and Carr, I was pleased to see, I think there was a lot of crossover voting for um, Charlie Bailey, just like there was for John Barrow. So I don't think anything was crazy out of line there, but I was hoping that there was going to be a little bit more impact from the Democrats to kind of take away that stronghold on constitutional offices. So now all of our apples are in John Barrow's basket. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I am really curious about that Richard Woods result too. And I think part of the issue is that education, while it's been a, a super partisan divisive issue in the past, wasn't really central to this campaign. I mean, Abrams and Kemp had starkly different visions on education. And if you follow this stuff, then there were no surprises about where both of those candidates stood. But if you were a more casual observer, they just didn't talk about education that much. And it wasn't an issue where they sparred with each other that often. And so I wonder if it sort of created, you know, this feeling that there was generally agreement on education and and maybe there weren't a lot of complaints. And so people backed Woods maybe because he had the incumbent uh, label by his name or, or maybe he's somewhat familiar having been sitting in that seat. I was a little surprised that Jeff Duncan's race wasn't a little bit closer uh, because I had wondered whether or not there were some Republicans who were still uncomfortable with how he emerged out of that primary against David Schaefer and whether or not um, some of them would have been intrigued by Sarah Riggs Amico, who, while Abrams was sort of a progressive superstar, some of Amico's rhetoric, if you listen closely, was a lot closer to the Jason Carter, Michelle Nunn messaging of 2014 that was like a little more business focused, a little less explicitly progressive, a little less explicitly partisan. But she did kind of uh, fumble over a few things uh, with a couple weeks ago in the race. Megan, did you have any uh, surprises with any of those statewide contests? Not really. I was I was just holding out hope that we would flip a few seats. You know, my ultimate wish was to see Georgia become a more blue state. Um, I definitely agree what you just said about Amico. I think one of the things that we sometimes like to forget is that Amico is actually a former Republican. And so I really do think that she could have capitalized on that a bit more if she wanted to get more of the middle vote, but she was focused on running as a progressive. Um, but I do think that her, you know, she's she's really a moderate, and I do think that that kind of came through. I was really hopeful of everyone that ran that we would see Amico get lieutenant governor, even if nothing else flipped. So that was actually a big disappointment for me. I totally agree with what you just said, because I felt like it was a missed opportunity because I don't feel like she was going to lose Democrat votes when she was running against a Republican. Like, I felt like even if she ran a little bit to the right um, or as or was more vocal about how moderate she was, she could have kept the Democrat base that she had and still garnered Republicans. And I feel like she really missed like a huge opportunity there because there was only, I think, like a 30,000 vote drop off from governor to lieutenant governor. Well, in Barrow's ad, we played uh, 
I played Barrow's ad in the last show with Luke was the only one that was like the only one on the Democratic side that had this like explicitly bipartisan message. Uh, Barrow closed that ad by saying he's a Democrat, but he won't bite you. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that he got a lot of crossover votes and enforced that race to a runoff when none of the other races did go there. Um, but yeah, I just, I guess the, the situation for Amika was that she saw herself more as Abrams running mate and wanted to be supportive of where Abrams stood on issues instead of painting some contrast between her and Abrams. Um, because her, because Abrams and Amika were doing a lot of joint events. They had their names on the same, you know, same materials that were getting handed out. They, they felt much more like a ticket than previous governor, lieutenant governor nominees had. They really did. And I found that to be very interesting. And again, you know, just to reiterate, I missed up for Amico's campaign staff and campaign strategy. Um, I think the other thing that I had some concerns about Amico. She seemed to be grasping for straws with how to participate in the progressive movement. And I think she made some pretty serious missteps with making some accusations toward Kemp, uh, or not toward Kemp, but about Kemp regarding the Me Too movement. And honestly, like that's where I know as a, as a Dem that somebody with, who is going to vote ticket, I started having some major hesitations because I was like, I was just concerned about why all of a sudden she felt the need to bring this up and to throw it in. And I really did feel like it was just grasping at something that everyone progressive was, you know, getting up in arms about. So she had something to talk about. So while it was uh, mostly disappointing at the statewide level for Democrats, there were bright spots in the state legislature. Uh, The Democrats netted 11 seats in the state house. Most of them clustered around the metro Atlanta area, they, they picked up some seats that had previously been competitive, but had been held uh, pretty consistently by Republicans. Um, the Democrats did lose the two Athens area seats that Trump carried in 2016. Uh, that's Jonathan Wallace and Deborah Gonzalez in 117 and 119. Um, those were really surprising victories in 2017 special elections, uh, but those sort of reverted closer to the mean what what do y'all think is the impact of Democrats making some gains in the state legislature? I do think um, it, I think it's helpful. I think that ultimately one of the things that we have to remember is that change is slow. So for those of us who do want to see a more progressive Georgia, like myself, any gain is a good gain, even if it's you know I think we were all hoping to come in and blow everything out of the water and flip Georgia to be blue. And that was, you know, this big blue wave, and that was all of the rhetoric that we were talking about and hearing leading up to the election. And I think that I personally have to take a step back and I encourage other Dems to do the same and see that net gains are great. We're still making progress. I feel like some of the wins for the Democrats, especially in like DeKalb and Gwinnett, were a little bit expected, um, even with some of the Republican seats that they took from incumbents like Scott Hilton. And like the area has just been changing for so long. I was a little surprised um, by North Fulton, um, specifically in Buckhead one, because I used to live there when like not even that long ago and they were pretty still, you know, pretty decently Republican districts. And then when you go up to like where Brad Raffensperger's seat is and um, things like, and Betty Price, like those were, those, those are just interesting seats to have taken. So while I agree that 
there was like an expectation that there was going to be this massive overhaul. I think it's these unexpected seats show that movement maybe might not be as quick as a lot of people want, but it's definitely like having an impact on places that matter. Like Fulton, the Fulton delegation having not having a Republican stronghold on that is huge. I mean, that's going to alter a, a lot because that those people are so powerful. I mean, just for everything from committee seats down, they've had a stronghold on the way that the legislature works. Definitely. And the other thing that'll be interesting is if if Kemp is a little bit closer ideologically to where Governor Deal is to where a Governor Casey Cagle would have been, um, and if he does things that uh, leave out the right flank of his party but require some Democratic support, the Democrats are now going to have 75 of 180 seats in the House, and that is a Democratic vote that you can get on that. That's more Democratic votes that you can get on moderate issues that you can free up Republicans to vote no on and avoid primary challenges. So I think, you know, we don't we don't know exactly what issues are going to come up in the legislature, but um, I could definitely see us after next legislative session saying, "Oh, this is a bill that that may have passed with." some additional Democratic help that couldn't have happened with a near supermajority Republican legislature. So while the governor's office uh, seems to have maybe gotten much more conservative, there's an avenue for more moderate legislation with Democratic votes in the legislature. So let's back out into the congressional contests and talk about this race from a national perspective. So at this point on Wednesday evening, uh, Lucy McBath is declaring victory over Karen Handel in the Georgia 6th race, while Rob Woodall maintains a small lead in the Georgia 7th race. Uh, But neither of these races have official calls as far as we can tell tonight. Um, but it, it does, you know, just, just for the sake of the conversation, let's assume that these results hold. Macbeth beats Handel, but Woodall holds on to that seat in the seventh. Jessica, what is your takeaway from those congressional contests? Well, I'm pretty sure that two episodes ago on Peach Pod, I was quoted saying that I thought Woodall was going to lose and Handel was going to win, and that's what I wanted. So obviously, I'm pretty disappointed. Um, I, you know, Woodall is not, he's not been a strong Republican um, in terms of like core values. And I think his debate that we, we talked about, he was a lot more moderate. And so I can understand why he was able to edge it out. I think had he not had so much for Scythe that he wouldn't have, um, because there were, I think NBC and a couple of stations called him losing um, earlier in the evening. And then as for Scythe kind of trickled in, they had to retract that. So I'm, I'm really disappointed. I, I'm not a Lucy Macbeth fan only because I don't like that she kind of ran on a single issue. I that I don't like when people do that. It's just a personal preference. And then two, obviously the tax issue and everything. It just the optics weren't good for that. And so I just feel like she's kind of off to a bad start. But if you know, again, though that's this exact area that we were talking about with the Fulton seats that kind of just came out of nowhere that lost. So I think it took a lot of people by surprise. It did seem like Macbeth 
was sort of the less polished candidate who had a little bit of baggage with the tax issue and Bordeaux seemed a little bit more polished with no baggage, but in a much lower profile race. Um, Megan, what do you think about the difference between those two approaches and why the sixth might have gone dim while the seventh uh, seems to have held Republican? Well, I think that's part of it. What you've already said, Kyle, that the race, the sixth race was way more high profile than the seventh. Um, You know, the sixth was already hotly contested in the last election cycle because of John Ossoff. And so everyone was first watching to see if Ossoff would run again. And then everyone kind of wanted to throw their hat in the ring for whoever ran against Handel. So I think, yeah, it already had national attention trickling down and left over from you know, the last cycle. So I think that's a huge part of it. Like Jessica, I also was quoted saying that I expected Bordeaux to win and Macbeth to lose. And while I am glad to be wrong about Macbeth and very glad that she won, um, I spent most of my day watching the further returns come in, but not watching it for the governor, but watching it for Bordeaux, because the margin on that one just got exponentially tighter throughout the day i believe at this moment she is down by less than 900 votes which is just insane to me it shows how close they really are but also it is heartbreaking because if if anyone ever wondered if their vote mattered it's stuff like this where it comes down to fewer than a thousand people like that that made her that that broke the election for her or made the election for Woodall. But yeah, so kind of back to the question, I do think it's always a publicity thing. And I think that both Woodall and Bordeaux ran campaigns quietly and ran them cleanly. And ultimately, sometimes I guess that bites you in the butt. I don't think that handles would have been as highly publicized and as contentious maybe if she hadn't just come off the heels of what everything or with everything with Ossoff. I mean, it was just a watch district, you know? And so I feel like that momentum never really stopped. They've kind of been watching her for since she was elected. And so I think that had it maybe been that way with Woodall, that it wouldn't have been the same. And I think it would have been a different outcome. Karen Handel has uh, lost some squeakers of elections. I think she only lost the uh, runoff in the Republican primary for governor against Nathan Deal by maybe tens or hundreds of votes back in 2010. And then this one with Macbeth, at least as of now, Macbeth is up by... 2,932. Yeah, out of 315,000 You don't have to sound so happy. (laughs) (laughs) I, I am sorry. Jessica, I am so happy. Like I'm I am so glad. You know, I've I've expressed some concern about that particular race and I have had concerns about it from primaries, but I am so glad that I was wrong. It is the happiest I think I've ever been to be wrong. I'm just annoyed. So earlier in this race, I was kind of laughing at the people at the national level who were handicapping the sixth and the seventh, and they had the sixth as more competitive than the seventh. And I was like, God, you guys are stupid. The seventh is way, it's it's definitely going to flip before the sixth. And then it looked that way all the way up until the very end last night, uh, when Macbeth um, was closer than Bordeaux was. Um, and then for her to edge it out today, uh, they ended up being right, and we all ended up being wrong. 
Yeah, I just cannot believe how close these elections are. Like one of my favorite things to do today has been to get on the results page and just scroll and see how close the red and blue bars are to each other for every single race. It is insane. Like Georgia is ready to make some changes. If nothing else, it should be encouraging to all of the Dems or all of the third party supporters who want to see Republicans get challenged. Oh, they're getting challenged. They may not be losing elections yet, but their constituents are they have a lot to say and I think that will I think that they're going to start hearing it. Yeah, if you thought there were a lot of ads on TV and a lot of mailers in your mailbox in this election, just buckle up for 2020 because uh Georgia is a competitive state uh in a lot of places now, and so that means you're going to get uh harassed by a lot of campaigns. Um, <laughs> don't put it that way, Kyle, but, <laughs> but yeah, you're going to get harassed. Be ready to throw a lot of things away. Um, so let's, uh, zoom out into the full national view of this. Um, so in Congress, the Democrats took the U S house, uh, the current count per the New York times is 222 Democrats to 196 Republicans, but there are some races still to be called. While the Republicans grew their Senate majority, I think they're going to net at least three seats. The count right now is 51 Republicans to 46 Democrats, but I think they may end up with either 53 or 54 seats and a a pretty comfortable majority in the Senate. What is your view of the message that comes out of this this midterm race at the national level? Uh, Let's start with Jessica. I just feel like we're becoming um, maybe like looking at Florida where there was um, kind of a shift towards they picked up a Senate seat and then their governor's office stayed Republican. I just feel like maybe as states we're becoming like when you when you I'm kind of like describing what I imagine in my head. So I don't know if I can articulate this, but like a wave in the sense of like it's in a bowl where we just swing the the wave just shifts from side to side. And so I feel like states are becoming less and less predictable because voters just while they're sticking to their party, they can't really make up their minds. Georgians, you know, they keep saying we're a red state, we're a red state. And then there's this small group behind the scenes saying, no, no, we're ready for change. We're purple, we're purple. And we keep making our way there yet everyone keeps calling us a Republican state. And I think that's what's happening with Florida too. I feel like states are going to become more and more um, hard to predict the outcome like down the road instead of just one election out. The biggest takeaway for progressives that if you had this rosy view that the nation was going to regret what they did in electing President Trump and there was going to be a giant blue wave in places that you would in places that you would expect and in places that you wouldn't expect, but that it would be sort of a universal condemnation of the Trump administration. That clearly did not happen with these midterms. And so the 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 top of mind takeaway for me, as you look to the next election, because elections never end, um, is that President Trump has a decent chance of getting reelected in two years. That's for sure. And that honestly, Kyle, what you were describing about having this rosy outlook, that was me. I got caught up in the passion of it and kind of forgot about 
something that I know to be very logical based on some of my interactions, which is that there are people who do support President Trump and who are going to dig in and support him further. Um, and I just – I don't know why, but I kind of just figured we'd change those people's minds. And so I think that what we're seeing is we're seeing the Trump support base really very dug in and ready for battle, which means that our job is going to be a whole lot harder. Well, and I think that's demonstrated particularly well with Ted Cruz. You know, he was somebody who was very critical of Trump and and has made some jabs. Yet when it came down to it, he he wanted some the support of the president. He welcomed the support of him and. I think in some ways it helped him tremendously. And I mean, even people like Lindsey Graham, who were not really, you know, friendly to the president, have kind of embraced um, the movement. I don't know if it's genuine or not. And I guess that's really irrelevant at this time. But the reality is that Trump is having a huge impact on elections all the way down. The other big picture takeaway I had was that a, a Democratic a national Democratic victory in 2020 is less likely to run through the South now than you might have thought a couple of weeks ago. Um, disappointing result for progressives in Florida with Andrew Gillum losing that governor's race. Disappointing result for progressives in Texas with Beto losing that Senate race. The discussion that has been that the South in in big Southern states like Florida, Georgia, Texas, Arizona, those states being on the cusp of demographic changes that would bring Democrats to power and help them offset some of their losses in the Midwest, that does not seem to be happening, but that Democrats have sort of reversed their losses in the Midwest. They, they won governor's races in Wisconsin, in Michigan, they were helped tremendously in Pennsylvania by a state Supreme Court decision that redrew their congressional maps right before this election. Um, and they and they narrowly lost a governor's race in Iowa, but I think unseated one or two members of Congress from Iowa. So, so that region of the country that went so big for Trump, that's the one that seems to have kind of backed off. But the South uh, seems all in on, on Trump. In his administration. What do you think Trump's reaction to this race will be or or should be? So I don't know that he's going to have what I would consider a reasonable reaction. What I've already seen him react to is like, yeah, good job, guys, which is a little bit weird, considering that he, the Republicans lost the House. Um and again, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to what he says, so I don't know what he said after those kind of initial good job tweets. But I do hope that he – I know that he has had some had some meetings today and is talking about, you know, being willing to work with the Democrats in the House and all of that good stuff. So I just hope that he does take it seriously, that he's going to have to kind of mind his P's and Q's and moderate his behavior – I just don't actually see him doing that. I think it kind of gives him the the boost of a little more arrogance and and like an un, not in an untouchable sense that we see him as untouchable, but in his own mind, maybe like the victories kind of give that to him. And so I, I think he's only going to become worse. Yeah, I think he's ready to take the gloves off and start really 
hitting some Democrats and, and having a Democratic punching bag in the House may actually be beneficial to him in his own mind. Um, he was really critical today of Republican members of the House that lost. Um, and he basically said that there were members in swing districts that didn't want to be seen with Trump and that it was their fault that they lost and they might have been able to pull it out if they had embraced Trump. It was, uh, I don't, in some ways, I actually think it's a very astute political observation that both in 2010 and in 2014, Democrats, when they suffered major losses, they, they really did. They were shy of the president, of president Obama. They didn't want him coming to campaign for them. And some of these, uh, swing seats also avoided campaigning with president Trump. But I think it just skews his view of where his base is. He, uh, was most aggressive in campaigning for red state was most aggressive in campaigning against red state Democrats to flip those seats to Republican. And they succeeded in that in Missouri, Indiana, North Dakota, and most likely Florida. And so I think he is going to look at the Senate as kind of his chamber and where his people are because of the setup of the Senate, that it is biased towards rural states and less populous states, and that he now has a big majority there. Um, and it's he's going to pair up with the Senate to go to war with the House and set up a very confrontational political environment for 2020. He thinks that works in his favor. Um, and until we get election results in, in 2020, you know, I don't know if we know if he's right or not. He may be right about that. So I just went out of curiosity after I said I didn't keep up with him much. I just went and looked at his Twitter feed. Did you know that he has decided that Nancy Pelosi Pelosi deserves to be Speaker of the House? <laughs> I did see that today. Yeah. Uh, In all the fairness, Nancy Pelosi deserves to be chosen Speaker of the House by the Democrats. If they give her a hard time, p- perhaps we will add some Republican votes. She has earned this great honor. I mean, Pelosi is toxic. The man is bipolar. I don't understand. I mean, among Republicans, uh, this is right, Jessica, Pelosi is is toxic, right? Oh, gosh. I mean, the memes started like at like 9.05 last night, you know, with her with the gavel. And I mean, they are they're out for blood for her. I mean, if the if the next House speaker was a big burly white guy from Ohio, it would be harder to draw that battle line between Trump and the House, because it would just, you know, it would be harder for them to hate a white guy from Ohio, but a a liberal woman from California, this is what Republicans have been campaigning against, whether they've had the majority or not. It's always, you know, the opposition is always Nancy Pelosi. Um, So it, it just, it sets up what I think is going to be a very, confrontational two years that also comes with a lot of spending on infrastructure. Um, so what do you, what do we think about uh, 2020? Were there any 2020 Democratic winners out of this election? Or uh, where do you think that uh, we will head next on our never ending campaign hell? So I think that ultimately, what we've seen in Georgia is establishing a path toward 2020. I don't think that we've necessarily pinpointed someone who's going to significantly benefit from the election and the results. But I do think that those of us that want to see a more progressive Georgia, we've started to pave the way. 
and that's what I keep trying to remind myself of. We have seen change. We have we have created change in Georgia. And I think that what we're going to need to do is just to continue building the momentum toward 2020 for that rather than being disappointed and saying, God, God, we didn't, the blue wave didn't materialize. Well, we had, maybe it wasn't a blue tsunami, tsunami, but it was a blue small wave and that's okay. Um, and so I think that, I, I just think that what that's what we're doing. We're, we're working toward 2020. I'm not sure that I have too, too much to offer because I predicted just about every race wrong in the last several weeks. And so I guess I was just overly optimistic as a libertarian who really wants just a like equal divided government. And so I'd hate to offer that same optimism for the national level. Are there any any third party contenders for president that you like or anything from this that would um, suggest to you that there's an opening to a third candidate for president in 2020? Larry Sharp, the libertarian from um, New York who ran for governor, he had outstanding fundraising. Um, I think he raised like over $300,000, which is almost unheard of for a libertarian candidate. And so I'd love to see him hit the national stage. I, I, um, though I'm just not particularly picky, I just want somebody new. I don't want to recycle a candidate. Um, Gary Johnson is a has been. I just want someone new. On the state level, you know, Smith Duval and, or Smith Duval, excuse me. I was very impressed with him and I hope that he stays active in politics and considers running maybe for um, another office that isn't statewide on the first go around. But we had some good, and Ryan Graham, we had some good libertarians here. But nationally, I don't know who could just launch themselves into that other than Sharp. Yeah, I think uh, the Democrats and Republicans are kind of dug in for 2020. I, I think Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota might have been a winner in the 2020 sweepstakes out of this, just given that the power in or the the fertile ground for Democrats to turn the tide seems to be in the Midwest. And she is somebody who's been very successful in her Senate races in Minnesota and her demeanor and just sort of the like Midwestern, nice, low key uh, attitude may be a potent uh, contrast to Trump in 2020. Whereas somebody who is is as sharp and as angry as President Trump, somebody like a Michael Avenatti, people may just be turned off by that whole that whole kind of thing if if uh, you had a Trump Avenatti race. So I, I think good night for the Midwest. Um, I don't think it was a good night for states in the South in determining who is going to win that Democratic primary, uh, just because I think there's going to be lingering questions that. Southern Democratic parties are going to have to prove wrong that a state like Florida or Georgia or Texas is flippable against Trump in 2020 because it wasn't flippable tonight. So I know this is a little bit off topic, but I want to go back to something that Jessica said a minute ago that I just found to be very uplifting and intriguing. Um, She talked about being incorrect about her projections for the election, but it coming out of a place of being hopeful and optimistic. And I think that ultimately in 
especially after, you know, in, in these recent days after the general elections, we all need to recognize that in each other. You know, and I know this is kind of like feel good and stuff like that. But I think one of the things that has caused a lot of division in this country is that we can't see that every one of us who's working for campaigns, no matter what side we're on, what we have is this passion, this goal and this bright vision for the future. Um, and I think what we all see, what we often see is the other one is trying to burn it down. And I just found it really interesting to hear Jessica say something that I've essentially said multiple times the past few days, like, I was wrong. I, you know, kind of am hesitant to say something, but like, I also got caught up in it. And it's because I was so passionate about it and so hopeful. And I think we need to hang on to that. It's fair. I think that's a good lesson that nobody will take to heart. <laughs> Probably so. But I just wanted to say it anyway. I mean, it would. It it. You know, I wonder if state politics could return to something a little less polarized and a little less confrontational. This race between Abrams and Kemp felt a lot closer to the toxic political environment you have on the national level, which wasn't really the case between Jason Carter and Governor Deal or Roy Barnes and Governor Deal for his two races. And um, I mean, I've heard over and over again from uh, people who have split time between the state house and Congress in Washington that the worst day of partisanship at the Gold Dome is like 100 times better than the very best day of partisanship in DC. But I just don't feel like there are mechanisms or incentives within our politics to get people closer to finding common ground and even acknowledging the humanity of their political opponents. Um, It just seems like this political environment is going the opposite direction. Which is a bummer. Um, so the the one thing that I would add as we close here is that there was a really important referendum vote uh, down in the Stockbridge Eagles Landing area. We talked a little bit about this before, and we're going to dig into this in the future if this vote went the other way. But Eagles Landing was a community in Stockbridge that was basically trying to annex itself out of that city and create its own little city. And it would have been a fundamentally different cityhood movement than the ones that uh, people on the north end of Atlanta are familiar with, with all of the little cities that have kind of been carved up out of incorporated land there. Um, So that is a, a big win in that Eagles Landing vote, that no vote for the people of Stockbridge. Um, And oh, and uh, Jessica, I didn't, uh, we didn't get to ask you about this, but all five constitutional amendments passed, how much heartburn does that give you? Like, the, I, I can't even speak about it. I'm so mad. <laughs> um, they, so disappointed. Like, come on. Defeat something, people. It's your opportunity to tell government to shove it. And nobody took the opportunity. Not once. I voted no on a bunch of things, just for the record. Well, I appreciate you. All right. Well, with that, I think we are going to leave that there for the week. Um, So we will return to a once a week schedule. And we may be a little bit quieter in between now and both the special session that is coming up in November for hurricane relief, and the legislative session that will be happening with probably new Governor Brian Kemp in January. Uh, But we will have coverage of those things. So you will hear us 
talk about that. Uh, but for now, we are going to sign off. Uh, so Jessica, thanks for coming back on the pod. Thanks for having me again. And Megan, thanks as always. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great talk. And we will talk to you all again soon. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.